All right, story time. I used to be really bad with my money because I had no system for tracking my expenses, which left me in a place each month where I was spending more than I was making and I had no idea where all of my money was going. I had to think about every dollar I spent, every time I bought something, paid rent, made a transaction, and that was stressful. You know, I had no money left over to save or invest. So naturally, I started looking for some sort of app or program that would do it for me, and I found this great app called Copilot. The way that it works is you connect your credit cards, debit cards, and bank accounts so the app can read and display your transactions. This makes it so when you open the app, all of your transactions are right there, and all you have to do is click on each transaction, assign it to a category, and then the app takes that data and displays it in simple, visually appealing graphs and charts. Anytime you want, you can open the app and see how you're doing on your budget, how your investments are performing, and even see your net worth. It's fast, easy, and the app is built really well. I love that I can customize the layout, and if I ever have an issue, support is very quick to respond. If you want a practical way to get better with your money, use the link in the description of this episode to download the app, and when you start your trial, use code MAGNI2, M-A-G-N-I, the number two, to get two months on the house. Oh, it was instant, man. There was no setting in to... When you're paralyzed, it's very obvious. I was barely breathing. I couldn't move a muscle. If no one was there and I was alone, I would succumb. I would have died in the dirt, for sure. That clip you just heard was Aaron Baker talking. In 1999, as a professional motocross racer, Aaron crashed and fractured his spine, which instantly rendered him a quadriplegic. He was paralyzed just like that. He went from being on top of the world to living a very harsh reality. Fast forward to today, and Aaron is a recovering quadriplegic, a husband and father, a published author and keynote speaker, as well as an entrepreneur and an adventure athlete. The things Aaron has been able to accomplish, despite the challenges he faces on a daily basis, is really inspiring. On this episode, he shares his outlook on life, his experience with death, and a practical system to get your mind right in any situation. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And if you do, please leave a review and tell me what made the biggest impact. Not only does that help this podcast, but it helps me understand what to focus on in future episodes. And with that, I'm Zach Morton. Welcome to Magni. I would like to talk about motocross and how you came to it. And uh, yeah, what was your connection to it? Well, it was really my mom. That was the the connection to a motorcycle because it was her family that were, um, you know, passionate about taking motorcycles out to the desert. And, and she was savvy on two wheels. My dad wasn't savvy, but, but she was, she was the rider, but it was he and my, my grandfather that bought the motorcycle when I was just three for Christmas, they played Santa Claus and had that thing sitting in front of a Christmas tree when I was just three years old. That's a great thing to walk downstairs to. Oh, I did. I, I ran down the stairs and, and jumped on that thing. And I hadn't even pedaled a bicycle at that point. Um, and so they, they fastened little training wheels to it. And I threw my leg over it and instinctively twisted the throttle. And, and from that moment on, uh, there was something that, that shifted in my mind about uh, my ability to control courage and fear in my life uh, within my grip. You know, it was a sense of a real um, controlling my, my destiny. That motorcycle gave that to me at that age and uh, nothing compared. When you learn how to control that thing well, 
uh, yeah, it's nothing like it. And you did learn how to control it well. At a professional level. I turned professional at the end of 1998. So I think the end of November, December, 99 was my first sponsored season and then injured in May of 99. What happened? I know you're practicing the bike seats, but can you tell us that story from your perspective? Yeah, it, I mean, that was a, that's a fond memory. It's, it's quite poetic uh, when, the, when a body, a human body and a machine can, can dance together in a harmony where there's just flow. You hear now this flow state term bantied about, but truly it is, it's a thing. And I was in that space moving effortlessly with this machine and it was performing. I was performing. The motor was revving high. It was just singing. And then it didn't. And then it stopped. It seized. The engine locked up at a, at a crucial point of a, of a very large jump. And the physics of that flung me headfirst over the handlebars. Really quick, Aaron, when a bike seizes up, what happens just so people understand? Yeah. When an engine locks or seizes, it's, it's like slamming on the brakes. If you're going 60 miles an hour and then slam on the brakes and it just locks up all the inertia, all the momentum continues forward, but the machine itself stops. And so I was, uh, obviously not seat belted to the machine. So I flung, uh, over the handlebars through the air, three stories above the ground, plenty of time to think. Plenty of time to forethink how I was going to land in such a way to prevent breaking my legs. <laughs> I mean, you can imagine jumping off a three-story building, what that might do to a body. And so I'm flying through the air. I had fallen from great heights before. Instinctively, I knew to kind of tuck and to roll upon impact. But the last thing on my mind was that I would impact the ground head first and break my neck but i did yeah i remember the moment yeah you said you heard your neck break mm -hmm. i remember the the sound um i've said it many times but it, it sounded it was loud it was like a gunshot like uh snapping celery you know it's like a wet crunchy uh grotesque sound um, and instantly, uh, it's just like flipping the light switch in the wall, all the light, all the electricity, all the connection to my body shut off. And I flailed down the hillside on the ground as though watching someone else's body, uh, experience this horrific fall, no pain, no strain, no feeling. And uh, came to rest in the dirt, the bottom of the hill. I was laying on my right side. My hand was in front of my face, and I could see it. My goggles were dust-filled. My visor was down, disheveled, in a heap. And I remember just staring at my hand, just trying to twitch a finger, move something, make a connection. And uh, my body was heavy. It was crushing 
the air from my lungs. I could barely breathe. I enjoyed writing about this in, in the memoir, The Rebellious Recovery, but it was a beautiful day. You know, I woke up feeling great. I was excited to ride the new bike. It had just been rebuilt. So I was having fun with the day. But in the moment, uh, there, there was a moment of eerie, um, I don't know, like I, I paused for a moment in the shop while I was preparing because I had chosen to, to use some race fuel that had been expired. And I knew that it was old race fuel. And I was just, as I'm filling my gas tank with this gas, just this eerie uh, sense of doom kind of swept over me, but I, I just ignored it and carried on. That's really interesting. I heard somebody say that these are like pings from the universe, like little signs or messages that hit you internally. Do you believe in that sort of thing? I mean, it's intuition. I mean, it was something that was, yeah, I was connected and, and you know, something was, was giving me a sign. Uh, giving me a signal to to question or to change direction, and I didn't. You know, I, I ignored it. And so when the result of that fuel, which was poor running machinery in a very, you know, high-speed, dangerous world, the effect was uh, was obvious and could have been expected. And I've and fast forward and I've had other incidences where, you know, there have been a sign or something and I, and I'll stop now and I'll listen and I'll pay attention and I'll analyze and I'll question what it is I'm doing or the direction that I'm headed and, and I'll change it. But I didn't then. Is it hard to look back on that and think about that moment no. for you? It's not. No, it's a beautiful moment. I mean, that's life. You know, shit happens to all of us for any reason at any time. For me, uh, you know, this is my path. And I've said it before, Zach. You, I mean, you probably heard me say it. I wouldn't change anything, you know. I mean, I'm lucky that I'm here because people lose their life for a lot less, a lot younger. Tragically, unfortunately, like just life happens and, uh, you know, accidents occur and that happened not to me, but for me. And I'm very grateful that I have this kind of empathy towards myself and that experience. I give myself grace for making a mistake. Shit. I shouldn't have used bad gas. Damn. You idiot. No, I mean, it's just... I was young and passionate about what I was doing and I'd do it again. Did it take you a long time to cultivate that empathy? Because I imagine at the start, it must've been a very um, hard experience with your you know, identity being wrapped up and being a professional motocross racer is an extremely incredible accomplishment. That must've been who you were and that must've shaken you a little bit when this happened. But I'm just curious, yeah, did that take a long time to cultivate that? Yeah, it's, it's, I never asked why, right? I wasn't upset at myself for, for the decision I made to do that and then the subsequent accident. I never spent time 
sulking in that space. What I suffered from was the damn injury itself, just the life-shattering uh, effects of destroying an identity. Who the hell am I if not an athlete or a motorcycle racer or you know, a young, uh, capable man being spoon-fed in my you know, personal care? Uh, shit, man. I had to be bathed. I had to be wiped. I had to be dressed. I had to be fed. That's all hard to deal with. But I wasn't like blaming all of it on something else. I didn't spend my energy with the why. I just suffered the effects of it. And I was pissed at it. A lot of rage, a lot of anger, very intense. Sometimes it would burn me up and other times it was immense fuel for my work, which was ahead of me. The rehab process, the rebuilding process. Do you ever get frustrated when you see other people in difficult situations blaming and not taking responsibility or? I don't get frustrated. I, I have, you know, empathy for them. I have sadness because I understand that it's painful. It's hard. But there's, I just have to allow them to experience that for themselves. And hopefully my actions and my words can provide some kind of solace or at least hope, continued hope for them to, to be willing to continue on despite the struggle. And if they don't take responsibility, responsibility for it and they choose to point the finger, I have a good dear friend who looks everywhere else except here. And he is in misery. He perpetuates suffering like on crazy levels. And there's nothing I can do or say to have him feel or think otherwise. So, brother, I love you. Good luck. Right. Yeah, you can lead a horse to water. Can't force him to drink, right? <laughs> so they say. Hmm. Uh, when did the situation really set in? And what was that like? Oh, it was instant, man. There was no setting in to... Par when you're paralyzed, it's very obvious. It, it, I was barely breathing. I couldn't move a muscle. If no one was there and I was alone, I would succumb. I would have died in the dirt for sure. Wow. So it was very obvious. I understood my plight. I understood the gravity of the situation. And with barely a breath, I was able to whisper to Arlena, who was there, the girl you mentioned, to, to get help, get paramedics, not an ambulance. There wasn't enough time. I needed a helicopter. I knew it. Instinctively, I knew it. My head was barely attached to my body. <laughs> you know, so there was no time for anything. I knew I was dying. So it's, it's instantaneous. It must have been terrifying. Terrifying for sure. Yeah. And then, so you spent months in the hospital. What, what were the most memorable experiences for you um, and adjustments, I guess is the right word. Mm. Well, I mean, 
when when all of a sudden you become an infant again you know you can't breathe on your own you can't eat on your own you're you're being you know you're intubated and you're being sponge bath and, and poked and prodded and rotated on a bed uh i mean i felt like just a an inanimate object being moved from place to place lifted and tilted and turned and washed and like it was a surreal uh experience of being alive um so that kind of adjusting to that um didn't just occur that was a as we alluded to earlier that was part of my extreme suffering was becoming that from where i was how capable and competent and you know a, a controller of my domain to then being completely helpless dependent on everything and that my life hung in the balance and was supported by other people and 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 medical equipment and god forbid those people weren't there or that equipment shut off i'm done and that did happen you had an experience where your dad was in the room and a nurse had to leave because there was another part of the hospital that was having an emergency you flatlined right yeah yeah that's the fragility my lungs filled with fluid uh i, I was suffering pneumonia which is common with my level of injury my body was unable to clear the excess fluid that that continued to build up into my lungs and and I couldn't breathe. I was drowning within my own body. And um, that was a really profound moment. That was a beautiful experience of, of um, disillusion and merging into a, a vast interconnected infinite spans of pure potential the boundaries were removed, the form dissolved, and a sense of bliss overcame me when I finally released and let go of this physical form. It was beautiful. Terrifying leading up to it. Beautiful once you let go. You gave the analogy one time, which I thought was really profound of a, a raindrop falling into the ocean and becoming part of it. It's inseparable. What was that experience really like? I know you say you lost form. I mean, was, was time a thing? Was it like a memory? Is it like a dream? Like, can you just like try to put that into words? It's very difficult to articulate Zach. Our language um, just does not do it justice. Um, no, all concepts that we've you know, created as, as human beings over our existence just falls away. It just all becomes irrelevant. Um, everything I thought I knew or understood or whatever was just like pointless. It didn't exist. Time, space, form, light, dark, you know, the dimensions it just became unified. And we have these theories and these philosophies and these things that, that point to it. 
we try to articulate it, we try to prove it, uh, we try to speak about it, you know, and it's just hard to. Uh, all I can say is that I am you and you are me and we are all connected energetically, fundamentally, in a way that is so woven into the, such a stunning tapestry. What do you think life is, the physical experience that we're having right now? If all of that fades away and becomes irrelevant, when we are gone, what are we doing here? We're just moving in and out of form. That's all. I mean, it's the, the things we've heard, you know, energy can't be created and destroyed. It's just changes. That's mm -hmm. all it is. Just I'm me right now and you're you right now. And, and then we'll change. And then we'll manifest in and out, in and out. That's what, you know, that, that field of potential is just like waiting to move into form and out of form and into form and out of form over time periods. If we try to put time to it, it's just, so, you know, we, we talk about reincarnation or, uh, I don't know what I actually believe in because there's no set form for me now. Uh, there's nothing that I completely lean all the way in one way or the other in terms of a belief or a construct. I choose to experience life in its full richness as it is now and know that I will then transition into another. So I think life is, what is life? Life is the opportunity to be and share love with each other, with the planet, with the thoughts we have, the words we can choose to say, and the, the abilities in form. Like, we are kinetic and we can make shit happen. We can do extraordinary things. We are the creators, man. So life's an opportunity. It's very profound. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, just to touch on something you said, I have been given or heard the analogy of like ants. When you see an anthill, it's like looking at earth because there's a bunch of humans running around and, um, Ants have no concept of, they may know you're there, but they're just there living their life, doing their task, doing their job. There's no awareness of something greater outside of their world. And I feel like in line with what you were saying, our minds aren't really made to comprehend what's going on beyond us. Like, our, like you said, our language can't do it justice. Our minds can't understand fully what's out there. So there's all these different religions or ideas like reincarnation that give us hints or clues or insights into what could be that quote unquote answer, if you will, but there really is no knowing. Yeah. And once you really do know, then, you know, can't really talk about it. <laughs> it's interesting. But yeah, I mean, you get up high enough away from the earth and, and you look back down on all of us with little ants uh, just on in our little 
blue bubble mm-hmm. tearing each other apart <laughs> over <laughs> such silly stuff. Yeah. Like really guys, I think we need to, we need to, uh, not necessarily go to Mars, but we should probably have some space, uh, space tourism to get people up far enough away to look back on ourselves to give that perspective of like shit we need to do a better job of coexisting Mm -hmm. do you really think that that would because like you hear stories about like astronauts who see earth from a different perspective it changes but do you really think that if we had a civilization on mars it would fix earth's problems no like no no that's just a macro experience of a micro, you know, problem. It's just like uh, in a relationship. If you think that the relationship is flawed because of of uh, the other person or whatever, and then you go on to the next one and the same results occur without actually fixing the source, you're just going to perpetuate it. So it's it's the source that we need to work on. Yeah. Ourselves. Right. Because if you want to see a change in the world, the point is not to go out and preach about it. It's to fix yourself, be an example. Well, that's why they say be the change. Right. You want to see in the world. You were pretty much told by doctors you had a one in a million chance of ever feeding yourself again. Were doctors hard on you? Like, were they supportive or encouraging? Matter of fact. Yeah. Just talk about that if you could. Sure. Yeah. I I was very fortunate that my mother, uh, Cherokee Indian blooded, fierce woman that she is, kept all that out of my mind. Those prognoses were kept at the door. My neurosurgeon and and doctors with all that prognosis uh, and forecasting of my future... uh, you know, we're, we're singing all that to her and she rebelled against that said, hell no, you're not going to tell him that those seeds aren't going to be planted in his psyche. He needs to stay optimistic and hopeful. He needs to keep that spirit of potential alive. This is possibility outcome, not probability outcome. This is something that I ferociously fight against today is how a doctor prognosticates a person's future. Hope is powerful, man, even if it's denial, because it keeps you looking forward. It keeps you living forward. It keeps you striving to become better tomorrow than you are today. Uh, I prefer a doctor to be matter of fact about the condition, about uh, the procedure. Fused my neck. We used bone from a bone or from a cadaver. We, you know, titanium plate screws your body. If you do not pursue an active, healthy uh, lifestyle, your body will succumb to sedentary effects, secondary complications. The list is long, but they are predictable. Bones will start to get weak, become brittle, demineralize. Joints will start to contract. Muscles will atrophy and tighten. Skin will break down. Your bowel and bladder will become dysfunctional. You'll have neuropathic chronic pain. You'll have autonomic dysreflexia. Like there's a lot of things that occur if the body just sits. Mm -hmm. That is predictable. 
But if you do try to improve these with an active, healthy lifestyle, aggressively engage rehabilitation, become a student of your body, feed it well, rest it well, move it well, become mindful in that process, then I, as a healthcare professional, cannot tell you what your outcome will be. I can tell you that the quality of your life will improve. Up to which level, to which degree, I do not know. It's in your hands. You are responsible. That's how I want to see a healthcare professional treat me. And that's what I say to others that are newly injured or going through their own health. I'm not going to sugarcoat this shit, man. It's hard, but it's up to you. Mm -hmm. That could be the difference in somebody trying and not trying, right? If your mom hadn't known to block that information from you, you and I could be having a very different conversation right now. We might not even know each other. You might not be in this place, have a family. It could be a very different life. Zach, I would have been dead long ago, man. I was already close to death multiple times. But if that was the dark seed that was germinating in the back of my mind, on top of the everyday struggle and suffering, I would have killed myself many times over. You know, I'm, I'm not always a, a hyper positive person. I feel like I'm pretty um, right down the middle. I, I have great days. I have bad days or not bad, but more difficult. They were a bit more uh, extreme earlier on in this process, especially being uh, so young, not able to actually handle the, the swings of emotion, I became very depressed, suicidal. And I was plotting ways to, uh, to exit. Uh, the most plausible way for me was uh, I, I couldn't hold anything sharp. My hands were uh, not strong enough to hold a gun or hold a, a, a knife or to do anything like that. So I, I was strapped to my 200-pound electric wheelchair, and I found myself to the edge of a swimming pool, the deep end of a swimming pool. And I knew that that would be an effective way. And I sat at the edge of that swimming pool for a good long while and contemplated all of it. I stared at myself in the reflection and I looked into the depths and um, it was the, the memory of my mother's eyes, um, my grandmother's eyes too, like they just sparkle with life and with love. And I knew that I would be leaving them behind and that wasn't fair because I understood that, that love was really all that mattered, you know, because of my death experience. And I just wanted to be able to give that back. They give it to me. I can give it back. And, you know, the only way to repay that love is to not leave, not be selfish that way. 
to show up and just give all of myself to this damn process. It's just work. Work is not like a, a complicated thing. It's just do the damn thing. So I backed away from the edge of that fucking swimming pool and screamed at the sky and cried and yelled and hated the situation, but I was going to move forward. I didn't know what forward looked like, but I was going to be stay here and walk through the fire, I suppose. And in that process, give my damn love, every bit of it, every drop. It's hot and, uh, and real. And that's what I'm still doing, Zach. <laughs> You're doing a damn good job of it, too. Thanks, man. So are you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you inspire me for real. Ever since I've known you, you have inspired me to no end. Uh, and I'm really glad that we've maintained a friendship like genuinely. I love hearing what you have to say. Yeah. Every time you say something, it's, it's solid and it's, uh, yeah, I'm so glad you're in my life. Good man. Likewise, we need to just put more of this, this out into the world. And so uh, that's what I'm really proud about, Magni, what you're doing with that, these conversations. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you've mentioned this a couple of times. Why is love all that matters? I know your experience with death really solidified that for you, but could you just talk a little bit more about that? Why is that? Why is connection the most important thing? Yeah. I mean, It's just where the beauty is. You know, it's just so, it's that feeling. Love is a feeling. It, it tingles the skin. It gives the butterflies in the stomach. It is effervescent in the mind. It's so fulfilling in another person. Just the way, you know, you and I were just sharing. What I do for you and what you do for me, that's love, man. In action, it's kinetic, it's energetic, it's meant to come together and to move. This is energy is love in motion. What naturally occurs is entropy, right? Everything is going to fall apart naturally. Love is what keeps it together here and now. And then naturally it just falls apart. This is the ebb and flow. You know, so in a vast expanse of pure potential waiting to be loved and created, we have the ability to do that. So shit, do it. <laughs> That's what you're doing. I mean, just this platform us sharing on Magni is an act of love. The intention is to connect people to themselves by connecting to others. So it's an expression of love. What does, uh, what does a typical day look like for you? And more specifically, how does it, how is it different in terms of, you said it takes a lot of bandwidth. I imagine you mean mental and physical. Well, my day starts at 6am. I mean, I wake up, little kiddo wakes up, um, 
but then to get out of bed, you know, like my movement is an intention. It's a, it's a conscious act of my will in order to, you know, grab something. I have to think about holding this thing. This is me thinking about squeezing, sending signals through my arm into my hand to make that happen. If I stop thinking about it, then it falls out of my hands. My right hand is much weaker than my left hand. In order to walk, it would be like you rolling out of bed and getting on your hands and then navigating down the hall on your hands. The amount of concentration, the amount of strength, the amount of balance, the amount of endurance on your hands. Uh, and then just to get dressed, you know, everything is a maximum effort, right? To put on a pair of pants is maximum effort. To get my leg up and to get through, you know, my foot in the, holding it, everything is a, is not just uh, second nature. It is an act of forced will. And then managing blood pressure. I'm standing at the sink trying to brush my teeth and not, pass out because the blood is pooling in my lower extremities. So then I have to sit and then I have to stand and then I have to sit. And then it's, it's just a constant management of my time, energy, and risk. So when I say bandwidth, it's conscious effort. It's hard to literally uh, walk and chew gum or walk and have a conversation. Wow. Um, my body is extremely impaired. I have, chronic issues with with my my musculature my my ability my all the systems of my body uh, they don't function at a hundred percent I have to willfully uh, make my body move and that takes a lot of bandwidth that takes a lot of energy it's risky it's been over a decade right? for like making this your life, you've been adjusting to this, but like what keeps you going on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, Zach, it's been 23 years. In May, it'll be 24. It's a good question. I mean, yes, of course. Now my daughter, I mean, it's a, that's a driving force for sure. Um, you know, it feels really good to be a light for someone else because that, when I light that person, that person then lights me. You know, it it's, creates purpose out of the suffering. Hmm. Um, I said this to a friend of mine the other day. He himself is in a, a, a chair. He's paraplegic. And I said, you know, I'm grateful for the, the challenge my body, physical body presents me because it keeps me in this space of real mindfulness. We hear these these you know these terms of conscious awareness, mindfulness. You know they're very esoteric. It's all pie in the sky kind of thing. But it's like shit. My body forces me to do this. If I do not pay attention to all these factors that I just mentioned, then I will crumble under the gravity, the weight of the suffering. And I won't move forward. I will succumb to the difficulty 
of living with this kind of adversity. And that's why in the past, I mean, we haven't talked about it, but I have willfully put myself in very uh, precarious scenarios like walking across Death Valley or riding a bicycle across the country because, shit, Zach, it's already hard enough for me to walk down the hall. Why don't I? And that's not an adventure. That's, you know, just mundane life. Why don't I go walk across a beautiful part of the world and have that experience, that that adventurous sense again, like, as I mentioned, my childhood was. Yeah. I mean, it's hard either way. So why don't you have some fun with it? That's really cool. I want to dive into that too. Um, uh, take us through recovery. Um, take us through the accomplishments, the extremely difficult challenges, even for a regular person that you, that you did going to the uh, Paralympics, riding across America, opening a rehab facility, walking across Death Valley. Yeah. Well, I'm mean, recovery, physical recovery, uh, commenced with the flickering of my left big toe. I mean, teeny tiny twitches of, of muscle engagement, connecting my mind to the muscles, my body and my brain. Again, this is a willful act that continues to this day. In the beginning though, it, uh, it, uh, was facilitated with my sister painting my toes with her nail polish, colorful um, colors, red, blue, yellow, green. Uh, she was trying to cheer me up in the hospital against my will. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can imagine I'm laying there paralyzed. My feet don't move. She uncovered my feet. She pulled back the sheet and just says, hey, bro, I'm going to paint your toes. <laughs> And I was, I was pretty upset about it, as you can imagine. And she was cheeky. She was cute. She's just like, hey, you know, if you can kick me, then I'll stop. <laughs> oh, That's horrible. You know, that sounds like agony. a sister. Yeah. The agony. <laughs> but she did. And it was, it was cute. Uh, my, my toes were beautiful. They looked like M&Ms or something. Skittles. They were, they became a, a, a focal point, a talking point for anybody that, that came in to visit doctors included, but it actually was, uh, the Genesis. It triggered my, my, um, the art of visualization, uh, a tactic that I employed as an athlete. I understood visualizing positive outcomes, visualizing technique, um, visualizing myself achieving certain things and. Somehow, again, like instinctively, I started to visualize uh, the color moving through my body from my brain into my my toes. My legs were illuminated. My arms illuminated these colors. And it was my left blue toe that flickered first. So I slowly and diligently kept practicing visualization and building upon these little flickers of movement from my toes to my leg to my arm to, you know, having gross motor movement. To be able, able to stand in water and take tiny steps, fully braced. I mean, this is over, again, spans of time, weeks, months, years, until wow. uh, three and a half years or so, I started pedaling a bicycle, um, a tandem bicycle. Again, I had progressed from a, a, a stationary bike that had electrodes on it that would move my legs for me to then being able to sit on the back of a tandem bicycle and ride with someone 
that someone happened to be my mother. And she and I began riding together and we rode just a few minutes at a time because I couldn't, I couldn't sustain anything longer uh, until we rode five miles and 10 miles and 20 miles. And we did the LA marathon because of pretty goal oriented. I wanted to have a target on my horizon to work towards. And um, so we did it. We did the LA marathon in 2003. Um, and then we did it again, 2004, we did it again in 2005. And then I, I declared that I wanted to ride across the country referencing with humor during a presentation. One time I, I blurted out that I wanted to go across country like Forrest Gump. It's a great movie. Great movie. And, and, you know, everyone was aghast. They thought I was kidding. My mom definitely thought I was joking, but I was pretty serious took us a few years to get to that that point of ability and and uh, to organize the logistics but in 2007 we did we rode from San Diego uh, across the southern most part of the United States over 3100 miles to the white white ban- white sand beaches of San Augustine Florida it took three and a half months wow and then we did it again the next year but and you on did our it- own bikes. Yeah, because you did it with your mom on the tandem, and then you went and did it yourself. Yeah, well, the first one was my mother and two of my best friends. I had a, a team of, of riders and support personnel. I mean, I set it up like a like a race team. I had sponsors and support vehicle. But then the following year, it was just my mother and me, and I was on my own special-built tricycle, and she was on her own bike. And we rode side by side from San Francisco to Washington, D.C., 4,202 miles. All the while talking to newly injured patients and doctors and students, communities, sharing the story and uh, planting those seeds of possibility, hope. On the heels of those two tours, which I coined the Rise Above Tours, I began racing competitively on this special made trike in the Paralympic program in 2009. And I started training with the full intention of going to London Paralympics 2012. So for three and a half years, I did nothing but race and train at a very high level with all the Olympic athletes in our country. I slept in a hyperbaric chamber. I rode like a savage every day. And um, uh, won a national championship um, and on paper was slated to, to medal uh, wow. in London. But uh, just a couple days before I was to go to London, I felt ill. And um, I didn't go. I had a bladder infection and all that, all that work ended in the emergency room. Mm. But that's okay, because I, I prefer telling that story of sacrifice, of hard work, of expectation, and then having life change um, unexpectedly. And that's relatable for most of us, whereas you would not be able to relate to winning a gold medal. All right, like just a handful of people do that. Right. 
and there's no real message there other than just you know work your ass off right it's um, uh it's it's like life is the journey not the destination but it's it must have it is yeah but that's kind of been your life no i mean if not it's any other journey it really is it always is it really is and finding the joy in it even when it's hard it's still amazing i have a reverence for life that is just ongoing and so deep that the entire spectrum is special and has something for us so on the heels of that i i decided i needed to to shift my mind pursue something different so i went to the desert i went to death valley and i spent a week out there and i walked 20 miles one slow tedious step at a time it was a walkabout it was a, a journey of my soul it was a connectedness to the earth and to honor, you know, every flicker, every step, it all built and meant something. It moved me forward and redefined me as a man. And I paid homage. That's what I did out there in the desert. And I was grateful. Came back and I had a business. I started a, a gym business with my mother, she and I. We worked that for a good long while, nearly a decade. And Sold it just before COVID. Auspicious timing, perfect timing, divine timing. Sold it to our uh, to our friend. So it still exists. We're happy about that. But we, again, kept moving forward in life. Soon after, my wife became pregnant. In the midst of COVID, when the world was shut down, we were, we were high. Hmm. We were bringing life into the world. And I was writing my memoir, creating a new opportunity, although, again, redefining my identity because for so many years I was just an avid athlete, recovering quadriplegic, entrepreneur with the business. That brings me to you and me right here, right now. I love it. The last guest I had on asked me about or mentioned parallel truths. Uh, so things you learn in one area of life that apply universally. And one that I heard you say, just to give you an example, is like when you're stuck in a rut, just throttle it until you get out. Like obviously you're talking about motocross, but this applies to life. What are some of the most, uh, the most, what are the parallel truths that stand out to you the most through motocross recovery life right now? Yeah. Well, I, I did learn some great fundamentals, uh, from racing. You know, I, I, my, my riding coach back then told me one day I, I came off the track just pissing and moaning. I'd, I'd lost and I was being a, uh, I was being just a, a, he was reprimanding me and he's like, Aaron, get your shit together. He's like, look, the only difference between you and the fastest rider in the world is the six inches between your ears. It's the way you think, man. It's the only difference. And that has stuck with me my entire life. That is what I share today is the mind, how powerful we are. We are more powerful than we think. As you mentioned, you know, when in doubt, gas it, momentum, 
keep moving forward. If you're walking through fire, don't stop. I mean, who has a Churchill that says, like, bugger on? And the only way to is through. You know, these are universal. They apply whether you're riding a motorcycle or you're recovering from a spinal cord injury or you're building a business or a family or a relationship or just going through hell. That's why the work I do today, what's, you know, the book and, and the, my future message is mind seeds, giving people some tools to, to better understand, to better navigate, to empower themselves, to keep moving forward. Can you explain what you mean by mind seeds? What is that all about? I, I loosely outlined uh, an acronym in my memoir called BASICS. B-A-S-I-C-S. Each letter stands for something which can be used as a a trigger um, in any moment at any time in your life. For me, this is when I look back on my process of how I've been able to um, transform this adversity into an adventure, which is the subtitle of the book. I realized that it's just basics. It's just basic ways of thinking. These little seeds that are in my mind that allow me to continuously put one step in front of the other, despite whether I'm motivated or not, I just keep applying this, these, these seeds in my mind. The first three BAS is being, B-E-I-N-G before doing. You have to be present in now, and that starts with be the breath. Always the breath. Always return to mindful breathing. Many techniques out there. Choose your own. I'm not claiming I have a, a way of breathing. I just, it's to turn your awareness onto it at any time. That's what the A is. Turn your attention inward your awareness. Breathe with awareness and surrender. S. Not give up, not accept, but surrender. Serenity in the moment to whatever it is, wherever you are, however you present. B-A-S. Breathe, aware, surrender. This is cyclical. This can be done in the car, in the middle of traffic. This can be done in the boardroom. This can be done on a hike. This can be done in the shower. This can be done at any time. If you can't sleep in the middle of the night at 3 a.m., breathe, awareness, let go, surrender. And just do that. Now you're just being. No agenda, no goal. You just are. And then you start to act, doing. Your next breath is to inspire. (sighs) Okay, now I'm activated. Now I can start to intend something. You can invoke the energy. You can initiate a choice, see. What choice? A choice to move you closer to, further along, to 
be and do who and what you want to be in life. And that C is commitment. That's where the magic is. Commitment over time, spans of time. That's the magic sauce. And in that commitment, you share that S. You share that ride. You share that process. You expose yourself and be vulnerable. You serve others. And that's where purpose manifests itself. You become purposeful. And then passion is lit, man. B-A-S-I-C-S, being before doing. It is a way of thinking. Mind seeds, cues, triggers to remember how beautiful this fucking ride is. That is a really cool acronym. I love that. Um, One of the coolest things to me about your story is that you, when you were a professional motocross rider, because of your childhood and the experiences you had traveling, you knew there was something more. Um, There must have been a point in your recovery where you realized that this was the pathway to more. And I don't know if that was a gradual shift or if it was immediate, if there was a moment. Um, but what what advice would you give to someone who's struggling to find purpose, either after a major life change or if they just feel lost or like what they're doing is not contributing? Well, as I mentioned, you know, in the context of recovery, if I don't do something, if I don't act, ACT action changes things, then it's the outcome's predictable. I'll stay the same. I'll succumb. I'll fucking die. Excuse my language. So I already know if I don't do something, then I know what's going to happen. If I do do, I don't know what's possible. But I encourage someone to share that, share themselves, share their time, share their love, share their vulnerability. When you do that, Purpose finds you. You don't need to look for purpose. Purpose will become. It's like you right now, Zach, with this, Magni. I'm sure you find great purpose in this work. I'm sure you're very talented in a lot of other things that don't quite have the same kind of feeling that this does. This is real work. There is purpose behind this. Therefore, you get up for it. There's some passion there. There is fire in you for it. You have a knack for connecting people, for eliciting emotion and articulate responses out of people that can help others. You are helping. Therefore, you are living in purpose. And that's meaning. We put meaning on things. So good on you for doing that. And that's what I encourage. Keep moving forward. Be willing to to face uh, the unknown. They say don't give up. I say it too. Your mom is a super important person in your life. And I love my mom. Like my mom's would do anything for me. I know she would. Um, how has the way, and it could be about your dad too, but how, how has the way that either of your parents what they sacrificed for you, how they've parented you, uh, or even your family, what they continue to do for you on a daily basis. How has that changed the way that you are a parent and a husband and just a family member? 
Well, I, I have the fortunate opportunity to know what real unconditional love is from my mother. Like she sacrificed her entire life for mine. She laid herself down in my time of most need. She became my arms and my hands and my legs, my voice. So I know that. And now I get to be that for my daughter. My father has a huge heart. I see a lot of tendencies in myself that I watch him do. A lot of times what I don't want to do, <laughs> which is still a, a great lesson. But I've been fortunate to have these people be my guardians, my guides, facilitators. So all I can do, as I mentioned before, is to pay it forward with my effort, my time, my love. So at night when I lay my head down, I like to be satisfied with my effort in life. To know that I'm making good on all that's been given to me. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great measure of success. To wrap things up, and Aaron, sincerely, like, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate you giving me your time on a weekend, on a Saturday. This has meant the world. And uh, I know that people are going to love hearing everything that you just said. So um, thank you. But where can people, like, what are you working on right now? And um, you personally, where can people find you, connect with you, follow you? Sure, yeah. Um, I am an open book, an open door. Please reach out. Uh, I'm AaronBaker.com is the website. TheRebelliousRecovery.com is the book. Uh, you can find it on Amazon, The Rebellious Recovery. Uh, please uh, uh Buy a book for yourself, for a friend, gift it to a family member, uh, write a review, share it amongst your community. Uh, I'm a keynote speaker. I love to share and uh, connect to, uh, to the world. That's, that's my purpose. Uh, there's a bigger business picture in the future. It's not necessary to talk about at the moment, but it is about catalyzing people. It's, it's facilitating opportunity for those that need it. So reach out on social media. I'm Aaron Baker. Thank you so much, Zach, for having me today. It has been an honor and a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when the business is ready, we'll have you back on to talk about it. And I will put all those links in the show notes for people to check out. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Likewise, man. For those of you that made it to this point, thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please leave a review and tell me what Aaron said that had the biggest impact on you. If you know of anybody who would be a good fit for this podcast, or you just want to connect, reach out to me on social media at Magni Podcast.